Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Kyla McDonald here, winding down 2021 with you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing to Stories of Our Times over the last year as well. If you're just dropping in to get a bit of an idea, then this is actually a very good week to do that. Because what we've done in the last few episodes, and indeed in this one, is we've picked out some of the most significant, most important Stories of Our Times episodes from the last year. We think it's important to revisit these because they are some of the most important stories of our times. They tell stories that we need to hear, that we need to think about, that we need to analyse, and that perhaps we even need to consider how we are responding to as well. Today we are revisiting with you a series that we first broadcast in the summer. It's about the difficult history and links to the slave trade of Penryn Castle in Wales. Hi, David Aronovich here. Today, you're going to be hearing the first part of our special series, The Legacy of Penryn Castle. I'm handing over to producer Brenna Daldorf because it's very much her gig. But first, just a warning. This podcast is about transatlantic slavery and there's some upsetting content. This particular episode contains references to sexual violence and other forms of abuse. Hi, I'm Brenna. I'm a producer for Stories of Our Times. And a few weeks ago, I found myself in Cardiff's Central Station. I was about to travel right up to the north of Wales. But the search for this story would also take me back in time and across the Atlantic to Jamaica. This is a story about how slavery shaped British history. And it's about two people living in Wales who are trying to understand that complicated past and how it contributed to the United Kingdom we live in today. It has such a significant impact on why I am the way I am now and why I, I live where I live or where I was born and the language that I speak. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Brenna Daldorf. Today, The Legacy of Penryn Castle, Part 1. Before jumping into this tale, before embarking on this journey, first, I want you to meet someone. That's April Louise. She's a 28-year-old academic born in London. She's tall with an aura that says, I know what I want. Less than five minutes after we met, 
I watched in awe as she told a perfect stranger to be a gentleman and carry my suitcase up the stairs. Together, April Louise and I were on our way to a castle in North Wales, a place called Penryn Castle. That's in Bangor, a town that lies about 40 miles along the coast from Liverpool. There, April Louise would come face to face with her harrowing family history, one that shows how her enslaved Black ancestors helped to make one British family incredibly rich and contributed to the United Kingdom we know today. I guess it made me just realize, although many times, you know, it's almost as if like, what are these black people doing here? Well, it, we're so interwoven for centuries to the, the fabric. It just provided a bit more clarity. And, you know, with that comes a lot of pain. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because actually, the journey didn't begin with me and April Louise standing on a train platform. It started nearly a year ago when I first heard about the castle, during an interview I produced for Stories of Our Times. So you're coming down the driveway. The driveway is over a mile long, and you're driving through trees, and it's like a tunnel of trees. You can't really see the castle. And then slowly, bit by bit, the keep of Penryn Castle comes into view. That's Welsh historian Marion Gwynn. When you first see the castle in its entirety, you cannot take it in in one with your head straight. You have to turn your head from one side to the other. This building is just enormous. It's just jaw-dropping. This audio is from an interview that Marion did with our host, David Aronovich, last year. We started talking to her about Penryn Castle because of a controversial report that the National Trust, one of the UK's biggest conservation charities, had just published into links between 93 of its properties and slavery or colonialism. The report said that more than two dozen of these properties had been owned by people who also owned enslaved workers. We know that because these owners all submitted documents trying to get compensation money from the government when slavery was abolished in the 1830s. Anyway, some people really welcomed this report when it was published. The National Trust said overall the response was positive. However, in other corners, there was a real and loud backlash. But everybody knows when you go to a National Trust home, you're going to have to walk about uh, mincing around as if you really, really enjoy looking at other, other, other people's old furniture. And you're going to have some stale scones and tea. You know, that's part of being British. What you don't want is a great big sign as you go in telling you that the person that used to live here was a ghastly racist, uh, used to deal with slaves. That last clip was from Mike Graham speaking on talk radio last year. The controversy grew and grew, battles broke out on Twitter, and then the next thing you know, conservative MPs got involved. We're going to move on and talk about the National Trust because there's debate on the future of the organisation in Westminster Hall today. Now, this comes after Tory MPs wrote to the Daily Telegraph to condemn the Trust for being captured by a clique of powerful, privileged Liberals who want to rewrite our history in their image. Members are furious at the charity's recent focus on politically correct issues, which has seen it link properties to colonialism and making staff wear rainbow badges. Eventually, the head of the National Trust stepped down. Though he said it wasn't because of this whole thing, stuff had gotten ugly. Some National Trust staff had even gotten death threats. But here at Stories of Our Times, we really just wanted to get beyond the sound bites about a culture war and delve into the real history of just one specific castle. And through that, 
explore what's the best way to recognize and perhaps even heal from Britain's slavery past. So we followed one descendant in one place, because we think it gives a window into a much bigger story of who we all are and where we all came from. April Louise, who you heard from, is that descendant. But before I found her, I found Penryn Castle and historian Marion Gwynn, who contributed research about Penryn to that National Trust report. We're going to get back to April Louise and me standing on that platform in Cardiff, but not until the next episode. This first episode will set the stage for our journey. So I'm going to play excerpts of Marion's interview about Penryn Castle with our host, David Aronovich, because that's where the idea for this whole project began. So you'll hear David asking the questions, and I'll pop in from time to time to move the story along. But first, meet Marion. I suppose I'd call myself a historian, although, you know, I'm, I'm nosy, so I, my area of interest cross many, many fields. My main subject of interest is Atlantic slavery. And within that, what I like to do is focus on Wales and slavery. And I'm particularly interested in the history of one one family especially, who were the Pennants. The Pennants are the ones who built Penryn Castle, which is actually kind of a massive country house in the form of a castle. The Pennant family first acquired the land it sits on in the 1760s and rebuilt it over several generations. It's massive. There's over 300 uh, rooms, over 70 roofs. It's just incredible. And it takes a very prominent place on the landscape, you know, because the name Penryn actually means promontory. So it sort of juts out and it's a statement building. Uh, Yeah, it's just so in your face. When Marion first started working for the National Trust at Penryn Castle back in 1992, she used to spend a lot of time wandering around, getting a feel for the place. What I particularly enjoyed was when the castle wasn't open to the public because you basically had the castle to yourself and you'd wander around these corridors and there were these two paintings of the Jamaica plantations, of the Pennant plantations. And I was aware that the Pennant family who had built Pennant Castle had had made their initial fortune in Jamaica with enslaved people. But these paintings just look so clean, so anaesthetised. I knew there was something more about them. I wanted to find out where those plantations were. And more than anything, those those figures, those tiny figures in these paintings, who were they? I know I'd never be able to find out their names, but what, what sort of lives had they lived? What could I do to make sure that that I could tell the story better. And I knew that the Pennant family donated all their archive documents to Bangor University. Oh, and here's David. Remember, he did the original interview. You started looking at the papers because of these two pictures. Yes. Because you felt that what was depicted in them was actually in some way untrue. That was your instinct. So now let's Let's look at what you actually discovered about the family and the beginnings of its connection with slavery. The first Pennant over there was a guy called Gifford Pennant. He didn't go over to Jamaica as a planter, but he actually went over as a soldier. Jamaica had been taken by the English forces in 1655 and the Spanish were trying to take it back and so they needed to have forces on the island to protect it. So Gifford was one of those who went over 
We don't know exactly when, but we, we believe it was about 1656 to 1657, so very early on after Jamaica was taken for England. So essentially it, in the Cromwell period, he's a Welsh Cromwellian soldier who goes over to Jamaica. Um, yes, it was very much part of Cromwell's Western mission. He wanted a piece of the action. He was very much aware of how much money could be made over in the Caribbean. And it's very interesting because what they did, they turned the soldiers into planters and an amazing amount of very cheap land grants became available on Jamaica. And Gifford Pennant took advantage of as many of these as he could. Right, so Gifford Pennant sets up the first plantation in Jamaica. Now, does that involve slave labour at the earliest point, or is that yet to come? From what we know, he was using slave labour from the very beginning because the Spanish had been using it beforehand. So there was already a known use of enslaved labour on Jamaica before the English got there. So take me through the history of the Pennant family in Jamaica and their plantations, and also how this relates to the developing slave trade. Gifford was clearly a very able negotiator. And within a very short while, he owned something like 18 times the national average. The money they were making from their sugar plantations gave the Pennant family a certain level of power and prestige on the island. Gifford's son Edward became Chief Justice of Jamaica. It was a powerful role because at the time, the laws for the colony were actually written there, not back in London. Under Edward, the slave codes, the laws governing the lives of enslaved workers were particularly brutal. One of the worst punishments was when the enslaved worker was nailed to the ground and then, and I read this in quote, applying fire by degrees from the feet and hands, burning them gradually up to the head, whereby their pains are extravagant. For lesser crimes, castration, chopping off half a foot, mutilation, cutting off ears, tongues, and slitting of noses. Do we know what kind of crimes these were punishments for? The lesser crimes could be for being cheeky, being rude, being lazy, striking a white person. I must say here, one of the reasons why the laws were so extreme on Jamaica was because of the ratio of enslaved workers to whites, which was at least nine to one. So they were forever in fear of rebellion at the enslaved, were beaten every day of their lives. One of the best known diarists that we have at the time is a man called Thomas Thistleton. He was a plantation manager and his his diaries are just superb. He records the flora, the fauna, the weather conditions. You know, it's a superb diary from that point of view. But he also writes the punishments that he inflicts on his enslaved workers. When one enslaved man is perceived as not having worked hard enough he forces another slave to defecate into his mouth. His jaws are then wired shut for several hours. You are joking. You are suggesting that a man sensitive enough to want to record the flora and fauna of Jamaica is also not only capable of, but actually sees that kind of punishment as somehow proper. He also raped 
so many he he notes in his diary the amounts of times the positions where he rapes these women on his plantations there are over a thousand records of his rapes of women during his tenure on the plantation this one man yes and even though he recorded his diary so we know it from him there's nothing to say that his actions were different to others elsewhere so this is the jamaica <sighs> Okay. Are oh, you right? Yeah, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah. So this is the Jamaica of the Pennants of Edward Pennant, and then the Pennant family actually leave Jamaica, don't they? Tell us about that and how that fitted into the historical pattern. Yeah, it was very common that once you got to the 1720s, 1730s, if you were rich, you left. You got out as soon as you possibly could. The problem when you have the absentee owners leaving is that you automatically start stripping the country of its profits because the profits have been siphoned off by the owners who are now living the high life in the UK. And I think this is an important point to make that if you have a look at the difference between Jamaica and, say, what was happening in the um, 13 American colonies was that the people who were moving over from Europe, um, Britain, to America, they were called settlers, they tended to go over as families, they were building roads, institutions, universities, things like that. If you have a look at what was happening in Jamaica, nothing is built unless it was to make money. The people who moved there, they're called planters, they're not settlers, rarely did they take their families. So the Penance upsticks and come back to Britain. Uh, tell me about the ones who come back and what they then get to do. They were incredibly rich, you know, the equivalent of multimillionaires many times over. And they were able to go into the highest levels of British society. And if you think that, you know, most of them went over there initially at a very humble level indeed, um, you had. Edward Pennant's son, Samuel, becoming Lord Mayor of London. I find that staggering. So from Gifford, a lowly soldier going over to Jamaica, his son becoming Chief Justice of Jamaica, and his son, so just two generations down, able to become Lord Mayor of London. That's, that's something. On the back of Jamaican money. Yes, yes. In Britain at the time, status came from owning land. So one of the returning brothers, John, bought some land in North Wales, a place called Penryn Estate. By the way, the similarity between Penryn and the last name Pennant is apparently just a coincidence. The next important member of the Pennant family to remember is Richard Pennant. He inherited this land in North Wales from his father. He also made a strategic marriage to the daughter of a neighboring landowner. Richard Pennant becomes first Lord Penryn, bringing together for the first time in many generations the old medieval Penryn estate under single ownership. Richard Pennant, the first Lord Penryn, would go on to become a very important figure in the family history. Richard was born in 1737, and we believe this was a year that his parents came from Jamaica 
to Britain. So it is often presumed that Richard was born on the ship coming over. So as far as we know, this man never set foot on Jamaica itself. So Richard grows up in the United Kingdom, basking in his family's new wealth, marries a woman from the landed gentry, and suddenly becomes Lord of Penryn Estate in northwestern Wales. When Richard arrives, there's this medieval hall house, and he decides to turn it into a splendid mock castle. So he builds this extravaganza around the medieval hall house, and it's covered in like a what he calls a patented finished slate that apparently has a yellow sheen. I cannot imagine what it must have looked like, but plenty of travel writers say how, you know, how it shone like gold on the landscape. But Richard didn't spend all his time in this golden castle he built on Penryn Estate. Far from it. Richard had been brought up by his father as a businessman in London and in Liverpool. Richard mixed with the principal traders, merchants, politicians of the time. He became MP for Liverpool for 19 years. And these were the 19 years that led up to the abolition of slavery. And Liverpool was Britain's largest slaving port. So he was critical in ensuring that trade, that shipping flowed backwards and forwards. And don't forget, of course, he still got his plantations in Jamaica. There wasn't a single part of this pie that he didn't have his finger in. Richard Pennant also spent 20 years as the chair of the London Society of West India Planters and Merchants, which represented the interests of British sugar merchants and plantation owners in the Caribbean. As you can imagine, this organization was dead set against abolishing slavery. We tend to look at responsibility for slavery as lying solely with those who owned enslaved people, but we need to broaden our perspective on this because slave ownership was just only one cog in the wheel. The reason why it lasted for such a long time is because so many people elsewhere were making so much money from it. So somebody like Richard was in a sense gathering around him a coalition of people whose interests were in maintaining slavery. They were gathering around each other. You know, the, he didn't need to gather anybody, you know, around him. They they were already there. I think at the time over a hundred MPs were owners of enslaved people, and we do not know how many others were investors. And tell us about Richard's role in opposing abolition. He was utterly convinced that there was nothing wrong with slavery. It's recorded. In what he said in Parliament, then when speaking about slavery, he denied that cruelty existed. He said there was no cruelty, that actually the slaves led a good life. He said that there was no cruelty whatsoever in slavery. And he petitioned Parliament several times to keep the slavery going. So there's no brick of Penryn Castle that is not in one way or another, and quite a lot of other places as well, funded or linked directly to the slave trade and to the use of slave labour in Jamaica. Not a single brick. After the break, we'll find out about what life was like for those enslaved on the Jamaica plantations. I'm Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent of The Times. 
It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The information we have about what life was like on the plantations in Jamaica is mostly from Richard Pennant's letters. We get two sources from this now. Obviously, we've got um, the letters that are going backwards and forwards um, between Richard and his agents. One thing about Richard is that he's very much a hands-on man. As far as we know, this man never set foot on Jamaica itself. But his knowledge of sugar production, industrial management, rum production is quite staggering. There was a continuous stream of letters going back, backwards and forwards. He was very well informed and he managed everything there. Let's talk about some of those letters. I know that you have several to hand. Let's now talk about the letter where he lists enslaved people and the illnesses they suffered from. Oh, this is, this, this is for his Kings Valley plantation. And if I could just read some of the details here. You've got Tom, 20, working in the boiler house, subject to sores. Bob, a cooper, subject to sores. Rodney, 23, a cooper, bloated. Peter, a field worker, weekly. It's just, and looking at some of the women as well, Sarah, a doctress. She may have been what we would term a wise woman, a woman who knew how to work with herbs or um, treatments like that. Weekly. Louisa, weak. Beatrice, weekly. 
it's just Dolly, pregnant, Jenny, able but with sores. When I first read this list, I thought able. So does that mean that they are healthy? But the word healthy is used in a list of 170 slaves. Only five are listed as healthy. Five. Five. When the slave trade was abolished, it meant that plantation owners like Richard were no longer able to bring in new enslaved workers all of the time to replace those who had died. Instead, these owners started focusing on what they called, and I quote here, breeding their enslaved workers. Richard and his agents exchanged letters about this. So his agent is writing now, every infant that a planter can raise on his estate is worth two that he can buy from the guinea factor. Hmm. That's the slave trader. How expedient then it is for us to turn our attention and thoughts to so important a concern. And Richard Pennant writes back. He instructs his agents to buy growing girls of reproductive age. To buy growing girls of reproductive age so you can grow your own enslaved people. Absolutely. When they talk about growing girls, what age are we talking about? Between 12 and 16. 12 and 16. It's just awful. Marion, what else does Richard Pennant say about this? He writes back to the agent, it seems surprising that only 229 field women, besides housewomen and others, should produce only 11 children. And the agent is writing back, it's their own imprudences in going out visiting the neighbouring estates, consequently colds, obstructions and other maladies that women are subject to ensue, which are enemies to procreation. And Richard Pennant clearly believes this because he writes back, I wish the mothers would be more inclined to take more care of their children. There's, after he presses, one of the agents provides an honest answer. Because of course, these are employees of Lord Pennant. They're not going to admit that they're treating his assets badly. There's this one letter says, I saw dreadful inattention and very culpable conduct in the overseers. It appeared they rather discouraged breeding women. <laughs> and after hearing what happened at Thomas Thistleton's estates, we can only assume. Can you remember what you felt when you first read these letters? Do you know the feeling is still there? You hear, because this, this is what gets me, we can look at the numbers. You know, we believe that 12 million enslaved workers were shipped across the Atlantic. The big numbers are there. When you read these papers, it just gives you the person or the individual. It's, oh, it still stays with me. So I just want to ask you to imagine the contrast between life at Penryn Castle at this time and then life for those enslaved at the plantations in Jamaica. I think we can take a picture of those enslaved in the plantations. What life were the people who owned those enslaved people? What kind of life were they living at the castle? They were living the, the high life. Richard Pennant had such a high political position. His address book were the cream of British society at that time. Pennant Castle was kitted out with every 
possible luxury. Silk wall hangings, carvings, Italian plasterers just to do the ceiling at the top of the staircase. Aside from pouring money into the castle, Richard also spent a lot of his money building roads and improving the local community in Wales where he lived. He cultivated the nickname Richard the Improver. So the investments in Penrhyn Estate at this time come wholly from Jamaica. He invested in schools, in model housing villages. So there was a, a, an incredible improvement in the living conditions of the ordinary people who were living on Penryn Estate at that time. By this time, the Penryns were also investing in Penryn Slate Quarry that was five miles down the road. The investments for that came from Jamaican slave money. But eventually, this way of life comes to an end. The abolitionist cause is gaining momentum in Britain. And in 1807, they succeed in getting the slave trade abolished. But that's just the first step. So after the slave trade was abolished, then the petition started to end slavery itself. That is the use of enslaved labor on British plantations. This happened through a number of acts that were passed between 1833 and 1838. Now, when slavery was actually abolished, what did that mean for the Pennant family? There were letters going out between the agents and Lord Penryn saying that they don't know the trouble they're causing. They do not know how upsetting it's going to be here in Jamaica. Um, they do not know the effect that it will have. One of the last letters we have is for 1868, something like that. An agent sent around to do a report on the plantations. The penants have already sold some of their plantations. The agent is writing back that their older plantations are just full of squatters that they didn't know about. So these are the former enslaved people who are just trying to scrabble a living mm. together while they're living out on the former plantations. But at least they're free. And how did the Pennant family end their ties to Jamaica? I was sitting in Bank University archives going through a pile of papers and I saw this folded document and I just looked on it, deed of sale, and I just opened it and it was the selling of the last plantation in 1940. Jamaica became an independent country in 1962, so the pennants were there for nearly 300 years. I must admit, it took my breath away, you know, I, was, I just sat there looking at it. Because just a simple document, such a simple document, it's just, yeah. Why do you think people don't know this history? Is it because it's all happened too far away, that actually enslaved people were enslaved a long way away from us? Or, does it, or is it just too indirect? I think it's got more to do with distance. If you have a look at what's happening in North America, of course, they lived around their sites of mass enslavement. One of the problems, I think, that it hasn't, the history of slavery hasn't been touched very well in this country until relatively recently, is, of course, those who are dealing with this country's heritage tend to be culturally associated with the perpetrators, even if they're not direct descendants of, of it. It makes it very difficult to talk about. Back in 2007, Britain marked 200 years since the abolition of the slave trade. At the time, Marion was working at Penryn Castle. She curated an exhibition about its connections to slavery. 
I wanted to make sure that people were able to respond to the exhibition while they were visiting it. During the eight months that it was open in the first year, we had over 1,500 comments, and some of them are just so moving. This one here from an anonymous person. My parents are from Clarendon, Jamaica. I have visited an area called Penance, which was, of course, the Jamaica plantation that the Penance owned. It is interesting and painful to see this exhibition, but it needs to be done. It is very good to be able to put some of these things into context. I am sure my ancestors worked on these or similar plantations. So you had quite an impact. I, yeah. I want to ask you something about a more general response, really, because yeah. quite a lot of people get quite irritated about this kind of thing. They feel that people are trying to write them a history that they don't necessarily recognise as their own or that they don't want to hear or that they're being lectured to. Have you had any responses like that? Yes, very much so. The National Trust mailbag in 2007 was absolutely divided 50% between those who were wholly supportive and those who were wholly negative. And I myself had phone calls. I had a few abusive phone calls, letters, people speaking to me in the street. They were basically accusing me of wasting National Trust money. There was one particular one that was insisting that Wales was peripheral to the slave trade and that this was no way to tell the story of Welsh history. Now, my experience of, and it may go back uh, a long way, of guides at National Trust properties is that they're very reverential about the property and also about the families who've owned them. You know, this was Lady Mary's boudoir and this is a photograph of the young Duke and isn't he very beautiful and so on. Did you experience any of that? Very much so. Especially with volunteers, you're giving up your time. You do develop an affection, a love for this place that you're giving up so much of your time. And whereas you've got a few who are utterly committed, you know, to the story should never be told, to others who basically just don't know how to deal with it. They're very conscious of offending people. They don't want to use the wrong words. They don't want to get it wrong. They don't know how to face the history. What did you think of the National Trust report about their homes and their links to slavery? I was involved in doing some of the research on on that. Now, I do know that, again, there's been massive resistance to the report. I would like to say that whoever was managing the National Trust's Twitter feed the day that that report comes out deserves an absolute medal. <laughs> <laughs> they handled every single comment that was thrown at them absolutely beautifully. It's so measured, so calm. It is to their credit that they have gone this far. What would you say to the person who says, when I go around a National Trust property, I I want to feel uplifted by it. I want to feel I escape from the problems of the modern day. I don't want to be told about things like this. Please don't do it. The National Trust is not the only organisation that has created 
the cult of the great house, where we see these country houses on our landscapes now separated from business, from trade, and yet these houses, not a single one of these existed in some kind of bubble. If you look at who the people who owned them were, they were always, they may be members of parliament, they may be lords, this, ladies, that, but they were always traders, industrialists, investors. We cannot, what we are doing is putting that story back. We're not taking it away from them. So I guess, Mary, my final question is, where are the penants now? After that, the last Lord Penryn to live in the castle, Hugh Napier, he died in 1948 and he left his estate to his favourite niece, Lady Janet. And so Lady Janet is a very shy, very quiet lady. She didn't really know what to do with this monster of a building. And so she, she started negotiations with the National Trust because of its history and so they decided to accept the castle. About 50 acres of land, parkland around the castle itself. And so from the 1950s onwards, the the Pennant family um, estate um, was actually quite small. After Lady Janet died, her eldest son took over the estate. He uh, married a Cypriot lady and spends his time between the UK and Cyprus. And then the the younger brother um, actually lives in a little cottage nearby the castle itself. And he is, he's a family historian. And to be perfectly honest, without um, his help, we wouldn't really know much about this history as, as much as we do. Obviously, you cannot compare what happened to the former enslaved of the plantations with anything that the pendants might be feeling but i know they are still coming to terms with this with this history if they ever will the family papers as i mentioned earlier are held in bangor university archives in 2018 we invited the jamaican high commissioner to come up and we took him to the castle and we took him to the archives to see these documents his reaction took us all, all aback. He, he gave a speech in Bangor Town Hall, in front of the mayor, with all the dignitaries, and with descendants of the Pennant family there. And he thanked them for having saved their papers and shared them with the public. That was actually quite powerful. I do know that there are other families who have their papers and won't share them. Other families who have actually burnt their papers because they are concerned with what the public reaction would be. You know, we're talking about a damaged, a damaged society. And I mean, Britain, in all its diversity, has been damaged by this history. And we need to find ways that we can move forward with this history. After producing the interview with Marion and David, I couldn't stop thinking about the story of Penryn Castle and its legacy. I felt like we had traced the history of the white penance up until the present, but I wanted to know what happened to the people who were enslaved on the plantation. So I started looking. It's a bit like if I heard my dad had been like, when he was younger and stuff, he'd been bullied and kicked and beaten and 
mistreated and then you're learning of that trauma and that experience and like yes the person that did it is no like potentially not not, no longer here but obviously it's impacted my dad and subconsciously may have impacted me as well that's april louise remember you met her at the station right at the beginning these were people they were human even though they were viewed as property and treated as such they had thoughts and feelings they felt pain and you know someone hundreds of miles away getting rich off their blood sweat and tears how is that Okay. In the next episode of our series, we take a trip with April Louise to find out more about her enslaved ancestors. Because she's got a clue about her past. Her last name. So I was aware that my name had Welsh, my surname had Welsh origins. um, And I was aware that Pennant isn't necessarily a very common name. You've been listening to part one of The Legacy of Penryn Castle, a three-part series by Stories of Our Times. This series was produced and reported by me, Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer was Poppy Damon. Special editing assistance was provided by Rosie Collier. Sound design was by David Crackles. Many thanks to guests Marion Gwynn and to our host, David Aronovich, who let me take over today. And additional thanks to Aidan O'Donnell. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.